morning, everyone. My name is Will, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here at New Life Press. And it's been about several months since I was able to to give God's word to this home church. And I mentioned this last Sunday, but it's interesting. During the the sabbatical in the past several months, I had the privilege of worshiping with a bunch of different churches. But I kid you not, 100% of all the sermons had the same introduction because all the pastors would begin their message by saying, it's really good to see everyone here in person. And I just want to say the same sentiment, the same heart, it's really good to see everyone here gathered together, but also virtually for people at home, worshiping the one true and same God here today. And so it's a pleasure to be back here. We are beginning a new sermon series in the book of Nehemiah. So let me read that passage for us, and I'll explain what our theme is for this year, why we chose Nehemiah to kick this theme off, and to look at this chapter verses 1 through 11, chapter 1. So please give your undivided attention to Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. This is, God's, this is God's word for us today. Starting with verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th years I was in Susa the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who has survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven, and I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. And this is God's word for us. Our ministry spiritual focus this year, as many of you know, is restored healing and wholeness in Christ. And so there's a lot of analogy to the book of Nehemiah, one of which is that as, begin, as the culture and society seems to be getting to open, open up a bit, we've been gathering here in person. Uh, it's been a rough year, hasn't it? For the past 12 and 18 months. And the fact that we're able to gather to some degree sort of symbolizes what Nehemiah is going through with the Israelites being scattered about in the exile and finally being brought together in person back in the temple, back in their hometown, back in Judah, in order to worship their God. And so there's some analogy and some metaphorical perspective on our experience today that is reflected here in the book of Nehemiah. But more deeply and more profoundly, spiritually, the book of Nehemiah is about spiritual restoration. And in Nehemiah, what God is doing through Israel is that he's bringing the people back, and he wants to restore a life, a covenantal life with his people, and tell them this is how you ought to live. 
This is a life-giving sustenance in my grace and my law and my word and relationship. And you can have a life that is full of joy and hope and satisfaction and commitment and a covenant that's fulfilled by their Savior, Jesus Christ. And how that relates to us in these eternal principles means that you and I can understand what these principles are for us to also live as a life of community. Because friends, you may know, and some of you in this room probably experience this, it's been a rough year for some of us. There have been mental health issues, there have been marital issues, there's been parental issues, there's been a lot of stress and anxiety, there's been a lot of difficulty with your job and vocation, it's been hard doing school for your children when they had to go do school virtually through Zoom. It's been hard for the first year freshmen in college because they didn't get the full experience, and it's been really difficult. And so we can relate to this in the sense that now we can have a perspective on what spiritual restoration means. Anyone who's familiar with the biblical religion knows how important the prefix re is in the Bible, in biblical theology, because biblical faith, according to one scholar, is preeminently the religion of revisiting and going back and re-experiencing something again. It has to deal with return, with redemption, with reunion, rebirth, reconciliation. The biggest Old Testament example of this returning and restoration is the Israel coming back from the exile to the temple, which is the book of Nehemiah. But even carries over to the New Testament because the disciples always ask Jesus when he comes onto the scene, did you come back to restore Israel? So restoration is something that we see throughout the Bible and it captures the heart of our experience here today that we seek to be restored by the grace and truth of Jesus Christ for you and me. That we could have something the world cannot offer you, but only in a relationship with God, secured in our Savior Jesus, can give you here today. So in this series in Nehemiah, we're going to look at restoration. And just to give you a little bit of a background of where we are in Nehemiah and the history of the church in Israel, at this point, especially for those of you who never grew up in the church, you'll know this is how the story begins. God chooses the people, Israel, to be his own very church and have a covenantal relationship with Israel. And what he does is that he chooses his people to cultivate a deep relationship but unfortunately, during the time of the end of Genesis, they came under the slavery of the Egyptians. So God sent this one guy named Moses to be a, a, people who, a person who sets his people free, and he leads the Israelites out of the captivity of the Egyptians. We call that the book of Exodus. And they're on their way to the promised land, which is Canaan. But it took them 40 years to wander in the wilderness, and the first generation of people didn't make it because of their sin. So Joshua had to lead the second generation into the promised land, and they finally get into the promised land. But because they were still sinful and because they were still selfish, God sent the Assyrian army to penetrate their land and kick them out into a foreign country, so they got kicked out of their temple, they got kicked out of their religion, they got kicked out of their home. God was still with them, but now they were in this place called Babylon. That's why you hear this phrase, the Babylonian exile. They've been kicked out and scattered and dispersed, and that's why metaphorically during the pandemic, we always kind of thought about it as some sort of exile or some sort of scattering because we're all locked down and placed at home. And in this time... This guy Cyrus comes up and says, you know what? All these religions can come back into Judah. 
because he was a savvy politician. He wasn't Christian, but it makes sense to actually be pluralistic in religion because you can make a lot of people happy, gain more money, build up the economy, gain, tax more people. So he says everybody can come back. And then you have the first wave of people coming out from the exile into their hometown. They're led by this name Zerubbabel. And then secondly, they're led by a guy named Ezra, which is related to Nehemiah 80 years later. And now we have Nehemiah. We have this wonderful and brilliant man. And today's message is going to be, in this context of people coming back, trying to build their home, trying to build their temple, trying to get a sense of what their past life was like, we meet this man, this leader, named Nehemiah. Now, similar to you and I, if we ever move, what are your priorities whenever you move? Maybe Pastor Min and Helen can relate to this. The first thing you've got to think about is where in the world you're going to live. So when these Israelites came back, what was important to them was their temple. And that's what we're going to take a look at here today. What do they do about their home? One commentator, scholar, Anne Royfe, has said this. The book of Nehemiah, it is a general's diary, a governor's report, a man's plea, a mixture of record-keeping and plea bargaining, of nationalism and piety, a tale of good management, courage, or moral and physical renewal, a memoir. That's the book of Nehemiah. And so as we meet this guy, he's a remarkable man. You would want to be like him. You would want to be friends with him. There's three things that we're going to look, or four things, in fact, that we're going to look at Nehemiah. And when you think about Nehemiah, I want you to place yourself into his shoes and imagine the way that he's looking all around him in life because he's wise, he's savvy, he's strategic, and he's looking everywhere. And these are the four points as you imagine Nehemiah looking around in circumstances. First, he looks near with people and his brother with compassion. He looks near at the people who come before him. Secondly, he looks up to God in dependence. And then thirdly, he looks back with comfort. He looks back at his life and back at what God has done. And then fourth, he looks forward and outward full of hope. So we'll see as we meet this guy, Nehemiah looks near with compassion, he looks up in dependence, he looks back with comfort, and he looks out with hope and confidence. And so let's look at this. First thing, that Nehemiah, he looks, he looks near. He looks at the people close to him. He looks with deep, heartfelt compassion. Hanani and some of the men from Judah come to Nehemiah. That's his brother, maybe biological brother. Nehemiah wasn't in the homeland. He was born in Persia, so he was a cupbearer in the kingdom. And he wants to know how his people are doing, and he wants to know how the temple is doing. And so he asks for a report. In verse 3, there's a report, and he says, Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are, great, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and his gates have been burned with fire. Now you think about it, it's not that these guys are just coming back and saying, You know, the fence of our home is actually broken. The wall meant so much more. The wall around Jerusalem, which is pretty big, meant there was no safety, meant there was no economic activity because people weren't feeling safe to do things in a city that had no protection. But even more deeply, the wall meant something more religious and spiritual. The wall was God's way of teaching people like you and me about holiness, to say the world is really good, but our identity is separate from the world. So the wall is trying to teach us that, not that we're arrogant and prideful and say the world is dirty and we're not supposed to engage them, but to say at the end of the day, God is clean, he's holy, he says your identity is not of this world, you're a citizen of heaven. That's the wall. It meant everything to them. 
I don't know if there's an analogy that captures that for us people today. The wall, that religious, physical, architectural structure was everything for these people. And to finally come back and say that the walls were burning meant their very life in God was at risk of being lost. And so what does Nehemiah do? What's his response? He says, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before God of heaven. That's Nehemiah's response. He sat down and he wept with compassion. Now think about this with me if you're a Nehemiah. You hear that the walls are burning. You hear that they were building the walls, but your very own king gave these orders and say, stop building the walls, and this building meant everything to you. Everything. It's not just your house. Imagine if your house got burned or the earthquake came. How devastating would it be for you to have your house lost and everything in your house burned up? You'd probably be devastated. But if you multiply that tenfold, then you get a glimpse of what this temple meant to Israel. And it was burning up. What would your response be? Maybe if you're like me, you'd be angry. But Nehemiah wasn't angry. Maybe you'd be vengeful. Maybe you'd feel bitter. Maybe you'd feel a sense of vengeance. You feel like there's a sense, and I got to do something. You have all these emotions that are fiery, but what does Nehemiah do? His first response, which reveals the kind of guy that he is, he cried. He was compassionate. And this gives a really deep insight into Nehemiah as he looks near. He's all heart. He's compassionate, and he's caring. He has tears, and he cries, and he mourns. Friends, think about the profound implication of this. Nehemiah, like this book here, they say it's most like an autobiography or a memoir. So Nehemiah is writing most of this, but he's doing this after the events happen. So it's sort of like a memoir. And he's recollecting, writing this memoir, his biography. And if you wrote your own biography, friends, what would you do? What would you write about? Maybe your origin story, significant accomplishment, some great achievement, something that would platform you in order for you to be remembered in the world. That's probably how 21st century postmodern Americans will do it, something triumphalistic, something achievement-oriented, something that makes us look really good so we could be remembered in the history books. But you know what Nehemiah does? He doesn't talk about his prestige or his power. He doesn't talk about his accomplishments. The way that he writes his memoir, the way that he begins to open up to the world about who he is and what's in his heart, is compassion. He prays and he mourns. He cries, he prays, he praises God, he repents to God, and then he remembers God. And if you think about this, if you read in verse 11 at the very end, at the end of this chapter, he almost randomly mentions what his job is because you don't know what he does. And he just says, after he cries and repents and goes back, and he says, now is a cupbearer to the king. Like an afterthought. Do you know what a cupbearer is? It's not a butler. It's not just a hired help or servant. The cupbearer was somebody who tasted all the king's food and drink just to make sure that it wasn't poisoned so that it could protect the king. But did you know that it's not just a food taster? The cupbearer had a lot of prestige. It had a lot of significance, a lot of clout. Because do you know what the cupbearer meant? It meant access to the most powerful person in all the land, the king. Think about it. You're tasting his food. You're telling him how it is. You could whisper in his ear. It's access to the highest powers, access and connection, things that you and I would want to hobnob and to network and to move up. 
But that's what the cupbearer was. In fact, in that culture, the cupbearer cup was a highly prestigious position. It was a remarkable place to be. It's hard to get to that level. You're considered to be loyal, competent, and you had the full trust of the king. The cupbearer was a very, very successful, prestigious, profound position of honor and of prominence. That was Nehemiah. Nehemiah, friends, in order to get to be a cupbearer, this is the type of guy that he is. And we'll see this later in the book of Nehemiah. He was an organizational genius. He could have been a chief operating officer. He probably would have given seminars on organizational leadership. He would have given TED Talks on what it means to be in strategic management and group dynamics. And in church lingo, he would have been the perfect executive pastor. That's Nehemiah. That's how accomplished he was. He was high up in the ranks. He had access to all the power and the riches. He had influence. He was extremely gifted. He was probably calculating, strategic. You'll see this in later chapters. You imagine a guy like Nehemiah to be cold and calculating and cutthroat. You'd think he'd be strategic and he would stomp on people in order to move up in the world. And that's why when we meet Nehemiah for the first time, it's so astounding because he's not cold and calculating. Do you know what he is? He's compassionate. And that's because Nehemiah, as we see in chapter 1, he leads with love and not his resume. Nehemiah wasn't just about efficiencies and policies and the bottom line. Nehemiah was about the people who were struggling on the bottom. He chose people over policies. He chose people over programs because people were his priority and his priority were people. And maybe that's something that's lost for some of us, and even myself. Sometimes you get involved, you get so caught up in strategy and accomplishments and smart goals, and you look at all the, the goals and achievements that you're trying to, trying to get, and you sort of lose sight of the fact that through all this ministry, it's really about the people. It's really about, it's really about helping people. And I came to that insight sort of as a side note. I didn't know I was going to share this, but you know, during my sabbatical, I had uh, counseling with a biblical counselor for three times. And you know, I met him in 2019. Uh, I met him again this past year. And I met up with him because I had a lot of issues with anxiety. So in 2019, I had issues with sleeping. I think it was related. So I'm growing now. It's like there's issues with anxiety. And can't sleep at night. Little details keep me up. So I was trying to get some biblical perspective on this. And long story short, eventually the biblical counselor said this, Will, you need to learn how to love people a little bit better. You need to know how to love people better. Because he kept saying, you know how to counsel people. You have some level of understanding, vision, and strategy, and policies, and procedures. But you got to learn how to love people who you find challenging and difficult, or even just simply as a Christian, not even as a pastor. And Nehemiah speaks to me about this, as I pray that I'll be with you too. You know, it's almost as he writes this memoir, he writes this, and he says, you know, I'm crying for my people. I'm praying to God. I'm confessing my sin. And at the end, he says, by the way, you know, I'm a managing director at Goldman Sachs. <laughs> you know, he says, I cry for people. I'm compassionate. I want people to really thrive and to live. And at the bottom, he just simply writes, you know what? I'm a multi-billionaire because I'm the greatest entrepreneur in the Fortune 500 company. I started a, I started a new IT firm up in the Bay Area. That's basically what he did. He cried for the people. He prayed, and he wrote at the end. Hey, by the way, I was a cupbearer in the kingdom of Persia. 
That's what he did. That's the type of guy he was. It is what one commentator says, 2 Corinthians 5.15, and he died for all, and those who live might, not, might, not, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised in Jesus Christ. That's what he does when he looks near. Well, secondly, let's move on. And by the way, not every point is this long. We're going to cruise through this. But secondly, he looks up in dependence. So he cries for the people, and then he looks up in dependence. One thing that saturates the book of Nehemiah was that this guy was a man of prayer. There are nine prayers in this, in this book. This is the first of nine. He's constant, and he's committed. One thing I want to share with you, if you're sort of a skeptic, and those of you maybe live streaming with us, you're not religious, you're figuring out Christianity, you have questions about it, is it coherent, maybe you're going through what the buzzword is today, deconstruction. One of the things I want you to understand is that prayer is not a religious thing. It's a human thing. Well, what do I mean by that? Prayer is not a religious activity. It's a human activity. P.T. Forsyth has said this, the very egotism of craving life is prayer. The great difference is the object of it. The man whose passion is habitually set upon pleasure or knowledge, wealth, honor, or power is in a state of prayer to these things for them. He prays without ceasing. These are his real gods on whom he waits and prays day and night. See, prayer at the end of the day is what do you look for to life? What are you asking? Who are you asking things to give you significance, hope, security, power? And so we're praying all the time in its most basic and essential understanding. You pray to love. You pray to marriage. You pray to kids. You pray for something in this world which is good, but you pray that it will give what only God could give. So prayer is not a religious activity. You're asking for things of life all the time. You're looking to things in this world to give you what in the Bible only God could give you in the gospel of Jesus. But prayer is not just a religious activity. It's a human activity. But Nehemiah shows that the first thing he does, this really gifted, competent, action-oriented man, if he did strengths finders, he'd probably come out with a lot of strategic gifts as well as an activator. When bad things happen, he goes to prayer. Friends, when bad things happen into your life, think of last time something didn't go well in your life. What did you do? Did you get angry, eat a bowl of ice cream, get a drink? When bad things happen, do you get mad at your spouse, your kids? Kids, when you get angry, do you take it out on social media? What do you do when you, something bad happens in your life? Remember, this is probably the most traumatic experience that anybody could have in the Old Testament. What did Nehemiah do? He prayed. See, this is the difference. When bad things happen, we doubt God. When bad things happen to Nehemiah, he turns to God. He anchors his life deeper in the characteristics of God. That's why in verse 5 it says, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant love with those who love him and keep his commandments. It's almost as if you can imagine you lost everything in life. What would you do? Nehemiah says, you're great and you're awesome. He realizes that anchoring his life in God will help him to sustain the suffering and the tragedies of this world. He grounds and immerses himself in the attributes of God. He says he's great, and he says God is awesome, and that he's faithful because he keeps his covenant love. In the greatness and the awesomeness of God and the love of God, he actually moves to repentance as he prays. He turns inward, and he begins with himself, which tells us when everything, 
when something bad happens in this world, it's not because God messed it up. It's because this world has fallen and broken. And Nehemiah shows that he turns to himself in repentance. When the Times London years ago invited several authors to respond to this question, what's wrong with the world? They invited several authors to answer, and they're going to put it into the Times London. G.K. Chesterton was one of the people that responded, and this is what he said to the question, what's wrong in the world? He said this, dear sirs, I am sincerely yours. He's absolutely right, and that's what Nehemiah is gifted and competent as high as he is up on the social stratosphere. When he turns to God, who is great and awesome, he turns to God in dependence to give him life and sustenance and direction. It makes him turn to himself and says, the greatest problem in this world is not that they're burning walls in Israel, but it's the sinfulness of our hearts. I am. See, it's sort of missed in this passage. But you've got to look carefully here. When he turns up and looks up in dependence to God, Nehemiah prays for months. Commentators say three to five months. You could kind of get a clue to this in chapter 2, verse 1, in the, the year that it claims that the story progresses in verse 1 of chapter 2. And you kind of do the math and calculation, and people are saying he's praying for about four or five months. It's remarkable. Someone who's in power someone who has influence, someone who's access to the king, someone who's naturally bent to swift decision, swift action, what does he do? He prays for five months. Now think about that. They always say in America that in our culture, we're all about the bottom line of being swift. We're quick on decisions. We're immediate satisfaction. If you had a big life-changing decision, the biggest ever in your life, and you want to move to action, you want to fix a problem, but what does Nehemiah do? He prays for five months. John Owen, the 17th century Puritan, once said this, what an individual is in secret on his knees before God, that he is and no more. That's Nehemiah. He doesn't rely on his connections. He doesn't rely on his money. He doesn't rely on his clout. He doesn't rely on his giftedness. He doesn't rely on strategy. The first thing he does is that he gets on his knees and he shows what Owen tells us. On his knees in secret, he tells us what kind of man this he is, and he looks to God in dependence. Prayer wasn't his last response, it was his first response. Before he did anything, he prayed. Have you ever persevered in prayer like this? Do you lose hope because God never answers your prayer? Nehemiah prayed for the same thing for five months. Now, one commentator mentioned this in verse 11. It says there real quickly, give your servant success today. And if this is sort of the model prayer that Nehemiah prayed every day for five months, maybe he prayed it every day for 150, 200 times, that means you imagine what Nehemiah is doing in verse 11. He's praying this every day on his knees. God, help me out today. And then nothing happens. The next day rolls around. God, give me success today. Today, today is it today, God? Are you going to give me today? Is it going to be something going to happen? Are you finally going to answer me? And nothing happens. Praise the next day, God, I need help. My people are hurting. My heart is broken. I'm mourning. I'm crying. God, I need your help desperately. Is today going to be the day, God? And nothing happens. He did this for 150 times over the course of three to five months. A guy who had power and access and influence, he turns to God because on his knees, we know what he's about. Verse 6 says he did this day and night. He turns upward to God. He calls him the God of heaven, which is funny because 
Susa in Persia and the problem in Jerusalem were two cities that were far away. One was really rich in Susa. One was really poor in Jerusalem. One was strong. One was weak. One was proud. One was broken. But both were tiny little specks of dust under the canopy of heaven. Heaven is where God resided. And he prayed for them every day. Is today going to be the day? Is today going to be the day? Perseverance in prayer. And then thirdly, he looks near with compassion. He looks up in dependence. Thirdly and quickly, he looks back with comfort. Now, he remembers who God is and what he's done. Read with me verses 8 to 10. This is Nehemiah looking back, and I believe he gets a lot of comfort. He reminds himself of who God is. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the outermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. Now, when Nehemiah looks back, this is basically what he says. He looks at God and he says, I'm looking at the history of my people. And he says, what gives me comfort is what God said and what God did. Now, those words in in Reformed theology is basically, he looks back and finds comfort in God's revelation, what he reveals about himself, and God's redemption, how he saved you and me, and made us a new people. That's how Nehemiah found comfort. He's like, I don't know what the future is going to hold, but I'm going to look back. I remember God's revelation, what he said, and I remember God's redemption in Jesus Christ and what he's done. In other words, this is something that we could, if I had more time, I'll try to bring out. The way that Nehemiah makes sense of present life is by looking at God's redemption and God's revelation. He looks at the Bible. How do I understand evil? How do I understand politics? How do I understand the complexities of a pluralistic, multicultural society? How do I understand the fact that I'm praying every day, today give me success and God's not doing this? How do I make sense of this life? Well, he doesn't turn to secularism. He doesn't turn to atheism. He doesn't turn to agnosticism. What does he turn to? He turns to God's revelation. He turns to God's redemption. What did God say? And what did God do? He looks back to the Exodus moment in Moses. And so there's something there where we can look back in our lives to make sense of the present, to give us comfort, to say the God who is with us in the past will be the God who is with us now and will be the God who will be with us for the rest of this life. What God says and what he does. You know, sometimes when I talk to young believers or non-Christians, one of the things that non-believers have told me in the past when they read the Bible is that, you know, the Bible seems confusing because the God of the New Testament seems so different from the God of the Old Testament. I'm like, what do you mean by that? Well, they say the New Testament God seems so kind and caring. He's loving, he's truthful, he's gracious, almost like an old grandfather that's very caring. The God of the Old Testament's weird. There's a lot of genocide. There's war. You know, men are allowed to have multiple wives and concubines. It's a really weird time. It's really strong. God seems really wrathful. He seems like an old, mean schoolmaster. So it's two different gods. But when you think about it, that's not really the case. The God of the New Testament is just as much, just as much about justice and wrath. And the God of the Old Testament is just as loving and gracious. That's why Nehemiah, when he looks back, is reminded of God's faithfulness, of his love. He says, God, you said if we sin... 
You're going to scatter us out. And that's exactly where Nehemiah is. He scattered out in Persia. Whatever was said in the past actually was true. It made sense of his experience. But he says, if you remember the covenant, then you'll bring us back and form us as a people. He's remembering the Exodus event in which this guy Moses, because he says, remember what you say to Moses, he brought us out, and then he gave us the Ten Commandments and formed us a new people. In other words, you can think about it this way. The Old Testament God is just as gracious and loving as the New Testament because it's the same God. And it's the love that gives Nehemiah a lot of comfort because even in Exodus, God saved Israelites first and then he brought them to Mount Sinai and then gave them the Ten Commandments of law. Do you know what that tells us even in the Christian paradigm? Grace always precedes law. He saves you and loves you, transforms you, and then he gives you the law to tell you how to live. And Nehemiah looks at this and he's reminded of that, of God's redemption, his revelation, of what he said and what he did. And that leads us to our last point. He looks out in hope. Look at verse 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name, you give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, why is this verse about looking out in hope? You know, Nehemiah looked everywhere, didn't he? He looked with compassion before him. He looked upward in dependence. He looked backward in revelation, redemption, and comfort. And now in verse 11, he's thinking about how to move forward. Now, think about this. Now you're going to be able to see in Nehemiah one of the most strategic, gifted, organizationally gifted leader in Nehemiah. He's ready to move out. He's got to rebuild this temple. That temple is large. It's huge. You've got to move thousands of people. How do you mobilize people? How do you cast a vision to get people to build a wall? You know, as I said before, a lot of people in churches use Nehemiah for seminars about leadership, about group dynamics, about lessons of leadership. Just look up Nehemiah. Everybody's talking about how this guy is such a wonderfully gifted organizational leader. So how does he look out at this big task in order to accomplish building the wall in hope and confidence? You know, back in 2018, that wonderful chapel back there where we have our second service, it was just a children's ministry room, and we used it, but it was, you know, it was pretty ugly. Let's be honest about that. You know, it had ugly carpet. It was, like, dark and dingy, and then we wanted to do the second service. We had this vision and I was like thinking, how in the world are we going to renovate this? So let me get a competent person. I was like, okay, our sister Unjong, thanks so much for leading this. She did a remarkable, awesome job. But for me, I looked out there and I was like, there's no way we're going to do this. Now, how are we going to paint the walls? How are we going to get a sound system? How are we going to build, do the AV? How are we going to get the screens? Something as small as that, I was like, there's no way God can do this. I'm like stressed out. There's no way. How are we going to get carpet? How are we going to get all the, the tile to come in and set that up? And when is this going to be done? You know, how are we going to do this? And I wish I was like Nehemiah and mobilized people, but I got someone who's more gifted than me, and then she was able to do this. But Nehemiah here, he looks out, and it's a city wall. How did he look out with hope? How did he, not get, how did he get over the stress and anxiety? Well, verse 11, he says this, Let your ear be attentive to the prayer, to the prayer of your servants who delight in fear your name, and then he says this, Give success to your servant today. 
Grant him mercy. Mercy. Isn't that interesting? That's how Christianity works. How are you going to accomplish this big project? Don't get another degree. No, don't try to politic and navigate up. No, all those things are actually fine. You know, you could, it's not, he said, you don't have to fundraise. No, you don't have to do that. He prays, well, how am I going to get this with confidence looking out? Mercy. Mercy specifically is for this conversation with the king to get permission to do this, but as he begins his journey to build this temple, it's telling that the word there, mercy. So friends, you and I, you look out in this world, and you're thinking, maybe I've got to get a new job. Maybe I've got to move. Maybe there's something big and significant. Maybe there's an illness in your life, and you're thinking, how am I going to face what's happening in this world with hope and comfort and confidence? Mercy. The mercy of God. Augustine once said that it is the present day that bites most sharply, meaning that how do you get through the present day that bites most sharply? It's through mercy, this organizationally gifted leader. Cyril Barber said this about Nehemiah as he begins his, pro- his plan and progress. Barber said, as I studied the book, I learned to my amazement that God has anticipated the problems of middle management. Most of all, that he demonstrated the importance and practical value of religious convictions in effective administration. Religious convictions in effective administration. The reason that Nehemiah had hope, and you and I can have hope here today, is because we have the mercy of God coming to us, not as an abstract emotion, but in a person, and his name is Jesus. That Christ is mercy for us. See, there are some commonalities here. I think that Nehemiah points to a true and better Nehemiah in Jesus. As Nehemiah goes out to save a people who are broken in a broken wall in a broken city, Jesus also goes out to save a people like you and me into his broken world. And he wants to rebuild the city, rebuild the walls, rebuild the temple. See, Nehemiah is going to re- rebuild the walls of the temple. Jesus Christ also rebuilt an entirely new temple. But you know what that temple is? It's not going to be a church building. That temple is you and me. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, the Apostle Paul tells the Corinthian church, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within you? So this restoration that we see in Nehemiah points to a true and greater restoration of the people of God like you and me, that the walls between Jew and Gentile have been broken down. The walls between us and God and our sin have been broken down. And he goes out because Jesus wants to save a people and he recreates the temple, not by architecture, but through redemption and saving people like you and me. He loved us. And he says, now you and me, we're the building blocks. That's First Peter. We're, this, we're the blocks that build up the temple, the house of God. We are where the Spirit dwells. God dwelled in the temple back in the Old Testament. Now he dwells by faith in you, Jesus' Spirit. Jesus recreates and saves us and transforms us. Jesus is the true and better Nehemiah because he is the chief architect. Nehemiah could look at the king of Persia, but in reality, Nehemiah realizes the true temple years later, generations later in the New Testament church is built by the true and great king of Jesus Christ who saved us and made us his very own, the temple of Jesus Christ, the blessing and the presence of our Savior for you and me. So I pray that you would be reminded of who you are. You're his people, you're his servants, you're changed and transformed. You've been brought into this new redemptive reality of who Christ is for you as he has made you into his body and his church, the new temple in which God fully dwells 
by his spirit in his word with you so you could go out there in the world and face whatever the world has to offer. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for this time. Thank you for your word. And we look at Nehemiah, and Lord, we don't look to him as our ultimate goal, our Savior, but we look to who Nehemiah points towards in Jesus Christ, and we could be saved and redeemed. Jesus, who has made an entirely new temple and built the temple, the people of God, the church, and saved us and transformed us and has with us. Lord, we love you with all our hearts. We pray, Lord, that we would continually be compassionate continually be dependent upon you, continually look back at the great works and grace that you've shown us, and continually look forward with hope and comfort to know that you are always our God and we are your people. We ask this in Jesus Christ. Amen.